Amen. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. And when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, all beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Our Lo O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth.
Good morning, Church on Main. I want to welcome you. We've gathered together here as the people of God to, to worship him. I want to thank you for coming out this, this morning. Especially want to welcome any guests that we may have. Uh, if this is your first time to visit or first time in a long time, hope that you'll take one of the Connect cards in the back of the pews, uh, fill out the information and place it in the uh, offering plate uh, later in the service. Or you can take it by the Welcome uh, Center after the service there. There'll be somebody there to, to meet you and give you any information you, want, you might want to have uh, about our church. We certainly want to welcome people who are online and we'll give you the information there that you need to contact the church if you need us for any reason, uh, let, let us know. We'd lo love to reach out uh, to you. This is a special day uh, today. It's Father's Day, and uh, we certainly, first of all, give thanks to our, our Heavenly Father, but uh, we're also thankful for our, our fathers and, uh, and for what they mean uh, in our, our lives uh, today. I uh, want we'll to make two or three uh, brief announcements. One is that on July the 2nd, we're going to have a unified worship service. It's going to be at 11 o'clock, uh, and then uh, uh, we'll have lunch on the, the lawn, and the pan jammers will be uh, performing. I think they were here last year, and uh, you won't want to miss that. Our life groups will meet uh, that day. Also, you should have received online uh, feedback uh, that was given to the ministry team online, but if uh, you'd like a hard copy of that, uh, there, there are some in our uh, Welcome Center. You're welcome to go by and pick one of those up. If you want to make further comments or have questions for the ministry team, I hope that you'll uh, send them an email. Uh, also, we're starting a Book of the Month Club. In July, the book is going to be Forgiveness by Adam Hamilton. You can pick those up in the office if you want to participate. We're going to have one meeting. It's going to be on Sunday, July 30th at Pat Graves' house to discuss the book. So hope that uh, you'll participate uh, in that. So uh, we're here to worship the Lord together. Let's have a prayer, shall we? Oh God, we come from a week that's been filled with all kinds of activities that have filled our minds and, and required much of our energy. Our minds are cluttered by the things that we have been doing and by, by what we have yet to do. Our thoughts, our emotions are perhaps inattentive because of the circumstances of our lives. So help us, Lord, in these next few minutes that we have here together to be still. We pray that you would dominate our thoughts that you'd help us to concentrate upon you, upon your word and your spirit, that you would accept our worship because we offer it with love and devotion and a desire to, to know you and to follow you. Oh God, on this special day, we come this morning to recognize and give thanks for fathers, the very name that Jesus taught his followers to call you. 
It's a name that breathes a sense of care, of, of recognition, of relationship. It reminds us of your tender interest in everything about us, our health, our happiness, our behavior, our fulfillment as a person. And so we thank you for this revelation about you. You are a good, good father. And we ask that you bless all fathers today. We thank you for them. Let them recognize the mystery in which we all live, a mystery in which we're all bound up with you and with one another, and let it inspire them to live joyfully and responsibly towards you. Fill them with your Holy Spirit to be sensitive to all who are depending upon them. Oh God, as we observe Juneteenth and the freedom it celebrates, help us to walk arm in arm with one another so that all people will dwell in harmony and in peace. We know and have seen your goodness, and because of it, we cling to the hope for liberty and justice for all people. So unite us by that one love that binds us to each other and to you. Breathe into us your eternal breath that we may never tire of working for the good of all people, whoever they may be. Oh God, teach us to get up every single day with a feeling of confidence because we are living in our Father's world, your world, and to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that our Father in heaven really does care for us and loves us with an everlasting love. Be with us, Lord, as we continue to worship. May you be blessed, for you truly are our heavenly parent, and we are your children forever and ever. Amen. Good morning, church. Let's stand and worship together. This is amazing grace.
invite you to join with me in our litany of thanksgiving. For these gifts and more, we give thanks to God. A good night's sleep, a job well done, safe returns, a drenching rain. Strength to walk and not be weary, comfort and joy, holy moments. Psalms, good neighbors, teachers and mentors, pine cones and seashells. Good books and movies and conversations, hummingbirds and blue jays. Finding what was lost, shoulders to lean on, resurrection and peace. Doctors and nurses, newborn babies, table fellowship, God's spirit. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow, streams of mercy never ceasing. For these gifts and more, we, we give thanks to God.
You may be wondering where Tommy is. He's been gone the past two Sundays. He and Susan have been on vacation, and uh, they'll be back this Wednesday. So he'll be back in the pulpit uh, next week, and uh, thankful they're able to get away uh, for a while. Our scripture lesson this morning is taken from the Gospel of John, chapter 9. It's a rather lengthy story. I'm going to read all of it, though. Uh, It's an amazing story. So hear with me the words of the Lord. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, It was not this, that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, for night is coming when no one can work. And as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And having said these things, he spit on the ground, and he made mud with the saliva. And he anointed the man's eyes with the mud, and he said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. And so he went and washed, and he came back seen. And the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And some said, It is he. And others said, No, but he's like him. He kept saying, I am the man. And so they said to them, Then how were your eyes opened? And he answered, The man called Jesus made mud, and he anointed my eyes. And he said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. And so I went and I washed, and I received my sight. And they said to him, Well, where is he? And he said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. And that was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. And so the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight, and he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. And some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. And so they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, He's a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? And his parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. And so for the second time, they called the man who had been born blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. 
And he answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. But one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciples. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And the man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. And never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. And if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us? And they cast him out. And Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. And Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. And some of the Pharisees near him heard these things, and they said to him, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A few years ago, there was a commercial on television where a, a young child is watching her father get ready for work one morning. She's in the bathroom with him, watching him shave, and she asks him a question. Why do you shave? And he replies, because I don't want to have a beard. And uh, later he's getting dressed in his bedroom. He's putting on his tie, and she asks him, oh, why do you wear a tie? And he replied, that's easy, because I have to. And then later at the breakfast table, he's eating his Cheerios, and she asks him, well, why do you eat Cheerios? And he replies, because I need to lower my cholesterol. And finally, the little girl asks, well, why do you need to lower your cholesterol? You know, children have this tremendous capacity for wonder. They're filled with dozens of questions about why the world works the way that it does, and it's good parents and grandparents who make an effort to nurture this, this curiosity. Well, what about adults? Shouldn't it be a good thing for us to wonder also? I mean, have you ever wondered why we drive on a parkway and park on a driveway? Have you ever wondered why slow down and slow up 
means the exact same thing. Have you ever wondered why we say something is out of whack? What's a whack? Have you ever wondered why wise man and wise guy mean the opposite? I wonder why it's called after dark when it's really after light. Doesn't expecting the unexpected make the unexpected expected? Why does the word phonics, why why is it not spelled the way it sounds? Why do they call it a TV set when there's only one? Why do they call them stands when they're made for sitting? Now, I could go on and on about these things. I mean, why at Christmas do we sit in front of a dead tree and eat candy out of a sock? Explain that to me. Now, there are a lot more serious things to wonder about than those I just mentioned. The point is that wonder is a good thing. And Scripture is filled with occasions when people are filled with wonder and amazement and astonishment at the things that they had seen and they had heard. Luke says that Mary is deeply disturbed by the words of the angel and she wonders what they mean. Later, Luke writes that when the disciples meet the risen Jesus, they're so in wonder that they do not believe it. Jesus goes to Nazareth. He teaches in the synagogue, and the people are astounded. Why did this man, where did this man get this wisdom and deeds of power? Jesus tells his disciples that it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than a rich person to get to heaven. And the disciples were greatly astounded when they heard this. Well, who can be saved? They asked. Jesus preaches about the resurrection of the dead. The crowd hears him and they're astounded at his teaching. Jesus feeds the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish, and the disciples are utterly astounded, the gospel writer says. He opens the ears of a deaf man, releases his tongue, and the people are astounded beyond measure. Mark says that people are spellbound by his teaching. The story of Jesus healing a, a man born blind and John 9 is a story about who has room for wonder in their lives and who does not. And at the center of this marvelous story that John tells is a man who is given the gift of sight for the very first time in his life. But it's also about a group of people who are more concerned about rules and regulations. And it's also about parents who out of fear betray their son's moment of wonder. Now, the setting for this story is quite uh, remarkable. It's in Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles, an exotic festival celebrating Israel's wandering in the wilderness. And an important part of this celebration is called the Illumination of the Temple. And at the beginning of the feast, these four great torches are ignited. Some accounts say that these torches are as high as the highest walls of the temple. 
And at the top of these golden candelabras are great bowls that are holding some 65 liters of oil. And in the evening, the, the priests, they would climb a ladder to carry oil to the top where they would light the protruding wicks. And great flames would leap out of these torches and it would illumine all of the temple and much of Jerusalem and the reports that you could see it for miles around. Well, it's in front of these huge torches, this great light symbolizing that pillar of fire that the Hebrew people followed in the wilderness, that Jesus raises his voice and he proclaims, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but they will have the light of life. And then as he departs the temple, he encounter, has an encounter with a man who has never known light a man blind from birth, and he miraculously gives him sight and light. And this is when the controversy begins. The former blind man is brought before the religious leaders for interrogation. It seems that the miracle has been performed on the Sabbath day, God forbid, which was a sin according to rabbinic law. And besides the Pharisees' reason, a sinner could not do what Jesus had done. And then they call in the blind man's parents, thinking they would surely find some inconsistency in the, in the account of the story of the healing. But his parents are so terrified that all they can say is, we know he is our son, and we know that he was born blind. They do not know how he came to now see. Well, finally, they call the blind man back, and this ignorant, uneducated beggar completely turns the table on his interrogators. He says, I don't know whether Jesus is good or whether he is bad, but I do know this. I was blind, and now I see. The Pharisees throw him out the door, rejecting his testimony to what Jesus had done for him. But then an even greater miracle takes place. Jesus finds the blind man, the former blind man, and asks him, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answers, I believe. And John says he worshiped him. So not only does the blind man receive his physical sight, but he receives spiritual sight. The blind man sees not only with his eyes, but also with his heart. And here's the irony. It is those who have physical sight and claim to have spiritual insight who are in fact blind because they refuse to believe and they're walking in darkness. Now, there's all kinds of lessons we can draw from John's account of the man born blind whom Jesus heals, but here's what I want us to see this morning. Here, a man born blind is miraculously healed. No one can account for it, not the blind man, not his parents, not his friends, certainly not the Pharisees. 
And for this reason, this is in many ways a very tragic story. A man is born blind and Jesus gives him his dream of sight. Can you imagine this man has been dreaming about the possibility of receiving his sight? But the religious leaders did everything in their power to rob the man of his dream. His parents and friends were not helpful either. In fact, they know that the primary issue here is the identity of the healer. And they are fearful. The religious leaders might well have said, look here, life, religion does not make you full of life. Religion is about obeying rules. It's about learning where the lines are drawn. Doing this, not doing that. It's about obeying the Sabbath. It's about conforming and behaving like the rest of us. But Jesus comes along and he says to the religious leaders, you can have your rules. You can have your life full of duties and obligations and regulations. I'll keep giving people their dreams of an adventurous faith, faith in me. Perhaps you've seen the musical, The Man of La Mancha. Don Quixote's servant and armor bearer, Pancho Sanchez, stands with Don Quixote as they look up on an inn that has fallen in disrepair. And Don Quixote begins to, to wax eloquent at, as to the beautiful castle that stands before them. He's describing the turrets and the magnificent gates. And in great detail, he describes this tumbled-down inn in terms that are worthy of comparison to Alcazar, one of the most marvelous castles in all of the world. Pancho Sanchez stands there as Don Quixote is speaking, he's squinting his eyes, trying to see what his master sees. But in the end, he has to confess that all that lies before them is a dilapidated inn. He begins to give a careful description of what he says. And then Don Quixote quickly silences him. He says, stop, stop. I will not allow your facts to interfere with my vision. A man has visions of a castle rising from the ruins and his companion just cannot see it. It's just not realistic. A man is born blind. Jesus gives him his dream of sight. And the religious leaders do everything they can to rob him of his dream. Well, as in almost every other story about him, Jesus does the unpredictable. He heals a blind man who didn't ask for healing, nor did he at first even express faith in him. That came later. Predictability and faith rarely coexist. But what characterizes Jesus is his utter unpredictability. No one, not even his closest friends, could ever predict what Jesus would do. 
Jesus was always surprising his friends by eating at the wrong houses. He's hanging out with the wrong people. He's going out of his way to heal on the wrong day. The religious leaders want Jesus to be the same as they are. But when Jesus is present, there's always a surprise. People rarely like surprises, especially church people. We don't want to be made uncomfortable, do we? We want a nice, tame, predictable religion. Take the surprise out of faith, though, and all that you have left is a dry, dull, and dead religion. Take the mystery from the gospel, and all you have left is what somebody called frozen dogma. Lose your awe of God, abandon astonishment, and you're left with nothing but meaningless piety. When religion is characterized by sameness, when faith is franchised like a McDonald's hamburger, then the uniqueness of God's people is dead and the church is lost. Did you notice what happened to the blind man? When the scales fall from his eyes, the explosions of color and shapes bombard his mind for the very first time. His wonder, his amazement are real. And what does he get for it, folks? He's kicked out of his home synagogue. A.W. Tozer once wrote, culture is putting out the light in people's souls. Dullness is the absence of light in our souls. It's a religious issue, a cultural issue. Our culture is drowning us in dullness. We have allowed technology to beat our imaginations in submission. We sit in front of a TV all the time or a computer screen or talk on our cell phones. It alters our values. It numbs us to life around us. Somewhere along the way, we've had the child chased out of us. A man is born blind. Jesus gave him his dream of sight. The religious leaders do everything they can to rob him of his dream. Perhaps the greatest enemy of the Christian faith today is people who say they believe in Jesus, but they're no longer astonished. They're no longer amazed. They've had the wonder of the gospel chased out of them. And Jesus came to rescue us to save us from dullness. This week I was thinking about when I was just a, a young child how, how much more creative I was, how much more imaginative I was, how much uh, full of wonder that I was. I can recall, and this is some of my earliest memories, when I was four years old, I loved Captain Kangaroo. I used to pretend I was the captain there was Mr. Green Jeans, and there was Mr. Moose, and Grandfather Clock, and Bunny Rabbit, and, and ping pong balls falling from the ceiling. And then I got older, I became more mature, and I became Mighty Mouse. Remember Mighty Mouse? 
I used to fly all over the neighborhood with my cape around my neck, saving these imaginary damsels in distress. My next door neighbor, Mr. Jim Hurley, called me Mighty Mike until the day he died. Well, I grew out of that phase. Popeye, the sailor man, became my favorite hero. Popeye was just this simple, seafaring, pipe-smoking, olive oil-loving kind of guy, and he hates bullies, especially Bluto. I loved Popeye. I identified with him. I even carried around a can of spinach in my shirt just in case I needed some immediate superhuman strength. Ms. Russell Pillow, one of my parishioners in First Baptist Church, Alta Vista, gave me a can of spinach one time, and it sat on my desk for years, and I would often look at that can of spinach and remember Popeye. Well, I finally grew out of the Popeye phase. I think I was about 30 years old. <laughs> the point here is that once we become adults, we lose our imaginations and we turn to other things to, to entertain us. The child's been chased away. Wonder has been replaced by dullness. Many times our sense of wonder is snuffed out by people who tell us what we can and what we cannot do. Years ago, a guy named Robert Fulgham wrote a book called All I Really Know I Learned in Kindergarten. Some of y'all may remember it. He tells about the time that he was left with 85-year-old uh, boys and girls. It was his job to keep these children occupied, a seemingly impossible task. And so in desperation, he remembered the game Giants, Wizards, and Dwarfs, which is similar to Rock, Scissors, Paper, it required each child on command to pair with another child and act out being a giant, a wizard, or a dwarf. The giant beat the wizard, the wizard beat the dwarf, the dwarf beats the giant. Fulgham let the children run around for a few minutes and so that they would get worn out, and then he would yell, giants, wizards, dwarfs, and chaos would ensue And as each children found their partner and they began acting out either a giant, a wizard, or a dwarf and tried to decide who won. And while all this mayhem's in progress, Fulgham feels a tug on his pants leg and he looks down and there's a five-year-old girl with huge blue eyes looking up at him. And he says, yes. And the little girl asks, where do the mermaids go? In other words, the little girl saying, Mr. Fulgham, you may believe that only giants, wizards, and dwarfs exist, but you are wrong. I am a mermaid. Don't limit me. Don't tell me what I can and cannot do. This last weekend, I was at my son Michael's house in Abingdon, one of the girls had a birthday party. They got a sandbox. And little Tegan, my four-year-old granddaughter, was putting sand over her legs. She said, look, Grandpa, I'm a mermaid. Yes, you are. You are. Many times, the wonder of our faith has been snuffed out 
by people who tell us what we can and cannot do. Many times the wonder of our faith has been snuffed out because we've simply forgotten what it's like when we first became a follower of Jesus, when we were hungry. We were hungry to learn. We were, we were hungry to, to, to grow in our faith. We were hungry to worship God. But our spirituality dries up because of the lack of wonder and the lack of curiosity. There's a story of a young couple who brings their newborn baby back home for the first time. And when they arrive and the family's other child, a precocious four-year-old tells his parents, I want to talk to my new little brother. And then he said, I want to talk to him alone. Now that surprised the parents, but they let the four-year-old go into the nursery alone with their new baby. And while they stood outside the room with their ears pressed up against the door, they could hear their little four-year-old son saying to their newborn, quick, tell me who made you. Tell me where you came from. I'm beginning to forget. Now, folks, there's lots of critical issues facing Christians today, facing our world. Racism, violence, drugs, disinformation, decline of the church. We could go on and on. And these are very serious things. We don't diminish them. But perhaps the most serious issue facing Christians today may be the loss of wonder in our lives. Have we lost astonishment with the good news? Is the good news no longer good? Or is it even news? Is it just good information? Mere information? Is the gospel of Christ no longer life-changing, but merely a, a program? I hate the word program, by the way. A program of personal development? Perhaps, just perhaps, it's time for us to ask ourselves what happened to the kind of Christianity that turned the world upside down? What happened to the gospel that spread through the first century like wildfire? Whatever happened to the kind of Christians whose hearts were on fire, who had no fear, who spoke the truth no matter what, who made the world uncomfortable, who were willing to follow Jesus even though they had no idea where it would lead them? What happened to the kind of Christians who were filled with passion, with gratitude, and who every day were awestruck by the grace of God? Shouldn't we, followers of Christ, be known for the fire in our souls, the twinkle in our eyes, threatening the status quo, living outside the lines, unpredictable and fearless? Shouldn't we call ourselves Christians be filled with awe, with astonishment, with amazement. In a day when many people are tired, they're worn out, they're thirsty, they're starving for life, maybe it's time for us, like the man born blind, to be healed by Jesus and to see for the first time this gift of wonder 
and become again like children in God's presence. All I know is this. Once I was blind, but now I see. That is amazing. That is amazing grace. Thanks be to God.
As I walk with you, I'm learning what your grace really means. The price that I could never pay was paid at Calvary. So instead of trying to repay you, I'm learning to simply Gina. Well, our invitation this morning is what it always is. If there's someone here that's never made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of their lives, I invite you to come today and to do that. I'd be glad to talk with you and how you might uh, can do that. Or maybe you've already done that and, and you'd like to, to be baptized into the fellowship of the church. Or maybe there's someone here that'd like to join in the fellowship of this church uh, by moving their membership here and becoming a part of what we believe God is doing in the life of this church. We believe God is at work here, and we would like for you to come and be a part of that. Uh, I'd be glad to talk to you after worship. If uh, you're a guest, we're glad that you came uh, this morning. We invite you to go by our Welcome Center and get information about the church. If there's any way we can help you, please uh, let us know. Uh, would you stand with me as we have our benediction? Oh God, you are an extravagant God. With outstretched hands, you have poured out on us grace and mercy and wonder and pleasure and delight and goodness and beauty and bounty. So may we live in wonder, love, and praise for all you have done. And now as we depart from this place, may the love of the Father enfold us, the wisdom of his Son enlighten us, and the fire of his Spirit kindle us. May the blessings of our Lord God come down upon us and remain with us always. Amen.